Hello, my friend, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It's lovely to be back here talking to you today. And uh, this is coming to you after a very, very um, relaxed, if you want to call it, but a very um, chilled out, if you want to call it, or why do you want to call it? I'm just saying unwinding opportunity or an opportunity to unwind. And uh, never, I don't know what um, it feels to be wound up, but unless someone wants to wind you up, and that um, then can be very um, winding uh, in its experience. And as a result, you have to unwind and then rewind and do a lot of things but involve coiling yourself up into a ball of stress-related matter. Anyhow, uh, what I was trying to say is it was a lovely week with family. I went traveling out of Bangalore, went to Goa, and everyone's like, oh, you're crazy going to Goa, it's so, so hot. And it was a bit warm, a bit, uh, yeah, kind of singed the skin a little bit. But, you know, you just have to work around it. Uh, you, you can't be one of those assholes are like oh i'm going to experience go for what it is when i don't care about the temperature and the sun and if you go you know to the beach and you kind of sit on the sand at noon well my friend you're asking for trouble you're not even asking for trouble you're kind of putting uh those people's words to truth those people who go oh, but yeah it's very hot who am i lying to but not like bangalore where uh, is, is any less hot it's pretty hot in itself, so you'd rather be in a holiday kind of mood when you're experiencing that heat. That way, you can um, be irritated and annoyed with everyone after spending a shitload of money and going away from home. It's a lovely experience. I would recommend it highly. Don't be an asshole at home. Make an effort. Make a plan. Go away from home, and then be an asshole. That's the true commitment to being an asshole. Anyhow, now many of us, I think, including myself, including you, maybe uh, look for inspiration from various sources, right? We either look for inspiration when it comes to um, self-help books, maybe, or uh, spiritual uh, books on spiritual awakening, spiritual awareness and spiritual seeking, or maybe even uh, inspirational quotes, inspirational memes, music, uh, lyrics and songs that have uh, stood the test of time, whatever it may be. And of course, now TikTok reels or Instagram reels, where people are like, oh, some very profound shit, which really isn't profound, but it sounds great in the 60 seconds that captures your attention. And it's sometimes good, but a lot of times you kind of give it a lot more weightage because it comes with this inspirational music, with this sort of very dramatic kind of setting. And they sing things like a small mind uh, talks about other people, a great mind talks about... Um, events and a great mind a good mind talks about events and a great mind talks about ideas or something like that and this is great uh if if you listen to it like this you're like what the fuck is he talking about but when it's said by um some influential black man or a preacher or a pastor and it's music and no 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 and you have a tear in your eye and say whoa my god i've heard anything so profound in my life but I've uh, realized that you can find inspiration wherever you choose to find your inspiration, whether it's from within the bottom of your sphincter to the top of your sacral chakra or maybe even to the top of your, um, what's that called? The, the top of your, your top of your head chakra. If you, let's, let's make it a little bit more anglicized. Sahastra chakra, I don't know, could be. But I think finding it in simpler 
sources is quite the charm and quite the challenge if you uh, actually look past all the, um, the, the 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 conversations out there like a lot of the layers of uh, under the guise of spirituality the bullshit that is being presented to you and a lot of these so-called god men who kind of rehash the same thing uh, it's kind of like uh, you know there was this one god man guru if you want to call him or whatever you want to call him why if you want to call him i'm going to call him and then they have different versions of them being put out for each um particular time of society or time of the hour of need you know there were different clothes of course the wardrobes updated the hairstyles updated the message is just kind of um chat gpt fied i would say because it's the same kind of content out there which is put in different words and everyone's like oh i've never heard of this before it's crazy you know we have so many of them out there and then a few years later they build up in fame they have all these crazy kind of invitations to speak at all these various kinds of organizations and everyone gives them a standing ovation and next thing you know they've probably fucked a goat or something like that they've stolen something or they've uh, pilfered funds or they've evaded taxes and and then again it and then another person comes up the messages change a little bit and again the same cycle repeats it's a beautiful cycle of spiritual bullshit that people believe and buy into because they don't find inspiration within themselves now if they don't find it possibly that doesn't exist within them in which case it's okay to be mediocre and live on a life of existence which is just mediocre that's your life that's your lot hey but i choose to find it now that is something that i think is important because you know what if you can't find it within you go ahead and seek it seek it in the soil beneath you in the water around you or the health faucet that you put up your soul every morning now because why am i rambling I find uh, my dog very inspiring and uh, there are a few things of course that people will say oh dogs are man's best friend or a dog has got intellect which people don't recognize or emotional um integrity or loyalty all these things eh, good now there are simple things you've got to find the source and the relevant source and the relevant points to take from that source now for instance um I, I, when my dog she eats the same food every day now some might debate she might have to go on intermittent fasting and she's getting older maybe one meal a day because she will probably live longer and healthier now that's another conversation for another day another episode for another hour but the meals that she eats they're not gourmetified they're not embellished they're not presented in a certain way it's every day same time same food and the commitment and the joy that she eats that with oh I find that inspiring. I find that amazing that she's just so happy. And I'm amazed she's a dumb beast. She doesn't know any better, man. She's a dog. That's all dogs do. They live to eat and they eat to live and they live to eat and they love to scratch with their private parts and they sleep and they don't have a brain beyond that, a brain to process beyond that. But fuck all that. I really like the fact that she enjoys it. The joy it gives her, the satisfaction with which she commits to that meal, the dedication with which she polishes off that bowl, and even the, despite the fact she knows she's had for the past five and a half years, she's had the same two meals and the same portion every time it gets over. The dedication with which she chases the morsels that she thinks might have fallen out of the bowl because she doesn't know better. But I love the idea. with which she approaches each meal that's one source of inspiration i take from her if i can commit myself to eating the same meal or the same joy with which i eat every meal i would be happy now the second thing we might say that human beings are the most advanced species on this planet with the ability to think and imagine the ability to think of possibilities and the tool of our mind that can create opportunities and uh, can put push the bounds and the boundaries of human potential all these things we hear but 
do any of us or do rather most of us use that potential of the human mind and the imagination and the ability to think to its maximum power? Some of us do and many of us do to a small extent, but we put it all to the wrong use, right? Oh, we think of the negatives. What could have happened? What should have happened? Why couldn't I? Why didn't he? Why should he have put me down? Why am I not getting as much as she or why is she happier than me or why are they more rich than I am? Why are they more content? Why are they more joyful? Why can't? Why does? Why not? Why he? Why shouldn't? Why should? Why? What the fuck? And that's where the tool becomes a poisonous tool. It becomes a curse that we are all bogged down by. And then again, we look for inspiration to get out of this. Right? Oh, tell me how to be happy, God man, please. Tell me how I can touch your feet and suck your dick and get joy and happiness in your ashram of peace. And then he gets into trouble because you know what? How much ever you can preach peace and breaking beyond the bonds of pleasure and lust. When 100 people offer to suck your dick, I think the 100th offer is just too much to resist. Now, the thing is, my dog, she sits there. She has some dreams sometimes. She's dreaming and in the dream she's running. Maybe she's running after the same meal. Who knows? I can't understand her mind. I can't break in and understand and witness it. But now, we think and as a result we are and as a result we feel we're better than other beings or species or animals but you know this power of thinking can also turn on us right as i just said the what if oh if i go to this party and she's there and she says this to me like she said last time she puts me down because she's insecure of her own appearance i'm going to say this and if i say this she will react in such a manner if she says i will say this and if i say this and she will react like this and if someone else interrupts this conversation i will say this and i will walk away victorious in this confrontation that i never have even experienced but i might because i have the power of imagination and the possibility of thinking and you go for the party and you have all this built up in you and this oh i'm gonna say it and wait for it and she never fucking shows up for the party and you're like ah you feel deprived you feel rejected and you feel guilty because that girl has fever food poisoning and none of the things that you thought will come to pass has come to pass and you feel like a piece of shit and as you should now this power of thinking the power of imagination my dog might not have it so she might not sit here at 40 going oh i might have only 40 years to live i might uh, die i might develop diseases i should quit smoking i should quit drinking i should quit meat i should become healthy i should exercise more i should watch what i put into my body i should watch what i put into my mind i should not think bad about other people i should be more benevolent i should be more compassionate i should be more empathetic she doesn't probably have the ability to think all these things but neither does she have the ability to go oh i'm going to die 80 how will i die why will i die i'm afraid of dying i should die well oh i'll be alone people around me my loved ones my friends might leave me before me i might be around after they pass away who will take care of me how will i prepare for dying how will i prepare for health care all these thoughts i don't think she cares about and we do this is the power and the curse of imagination and possibilities of thinking and what if this leads to this which might not and then we seek spirituality and spiritual living says live in the moment there is no reason to think of the past because the past is something you cannot change in the future something that has not happened so live for the moment and she does without the ability to think or imagine she is in the fucking moment and there's no moment more than the moment she's in because she's just chilling she's like hey you know what i'm not gonna worry about it when and if it might happen and you know we're like if i get arthritis my granddad arthritis his father had arthritis that cardio 
cardiovascular disease and cancer and Parkinson's and amnesia and dementia and Alzheimer's. And we worry and we worry and we worry. And the first thing that we, once we start becoming aware of death is we start fearing death. And instead of living, we are afraid of living because we are afraid of dying. So as a result, we prevent everything to postpone the idea of dying. And as a result, we are worried about what we did, which might lead to what we do. And as a result, we'd forget to do what is happening now, which she does. And I don't know, because I was thinking, do I, do, does my dog ever think like, oh, when I'm 10, I might not be able to chase this ball. My hips might be weak. I might not be able to. Th-. Now, when she does turn 10, she might have all these issues, in which case she will not be happy. But she's not wasting her fifth and sixth year wondering about what's going to happen in the ninth and the 10th year. And I think that is something I'm inspired by. So, yeah. Those are two things which I take away from my beautiful Labrador doggy, Jinke. And, uh, well, not to sound preachy, which I might sound, uh, you should, I think, find simpler questions and look for simpler sources to answer these simpler questions. Because the answers are out there, my friends. It's the questions that matter. The right questions will always find the answers because the universe has them for you. We ask the wrong questions and therefore we're presented with answers that suit those wrong questions but might not suit the moment in time and the things that you need to find your inspiration within you or something that you need to do to exist and not be a piece of shit annoying everybody and wondering all these thoughts. Because all of us experience these thoughts. I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. I think we all have these thoughts about people and what we should have said and what they shouldn't have said. And I just think, I find these points that my dog has helped me learn from her very, very useful. And I will try practicing them and applying them in my life. Now, let me talk about today's guest on that note. Dr. Mary Newport was a pleasure to have on this podcast. She is someone who is a big proponent on how we can use lifestyle to prevent diseases, especially diseases to do with the mind decline of the mind, decline of neurological and physiological powers related to the mind uh, by lifestyle corrections. You know, Mary's husband uh, had Alzheimer's and she found that by giving him a teaspoon or tablespoon, if I'm not mistaken, of coconut oil every day, it really improved the physiological and neurological manifestations of Alzheimer's. In this episode, we talk about everything related to health and to aging and to also the state of mind and how to keep your mental faculties as sharp as possible and not keep about it in a very sort of, oh, I'm going to keep my mind sharp. But there is a way in which you can be kind to your body, kind to your mind. You can do it not just through medication or these exercises, which are also important to a certain extent, but there are smaller things that you can correct or you can introduce into your life at a younger age, which will help you and which will help you without being obsessed and without being compulsive about it. So you'll enjoy this. I had a lovely time chatting with her. Dr. Mary, if you're listening, appreciate you being on the podcast. And to all of you listening, hey, take it easy. I appreciate you as always listening to this podcast. Till next time, goodbye, God bless, take care of yourselves. And here is Dr. Mary Newport. Cheers. Dr. Mary Newport, welcome to the Soapy Rao Show. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you so much, Sandeep, for inviting me to be on your program. It's lovely um, to have someone who's got so much experience in the medical field uh, talking to me today about things that are a lot of people in the population experiencing from across the spectrum, right? From you, you and, and, and you're in such a unique position, um, you know, with your medical training, of course, you, you've dealt for 30 years with uh, infants and other issues that are surrounding sometimes in those scenarios. And now as a result of the uh, being a caregiver for your husband, you're on both sort of ends of the spectrum when it comes to age. Um, I, I want to sort of ask you this, if it is a good place to start 
maybe, you know, we, we have these conversations around the world right now about mental health, about trauma, about depression, about anxiety, and those um, are supposedly ailments of the mind. And then we have things like Parkinson's, and then we have things like dementia and Alzheimer's, which are of the brain. So maybe that may be a good point to start. Is there a disting- uh, distinction between the mind and the brain? Um, that's a question uh, nobody has ever asked me before. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously the mind, our ability to think, um, uh, express emotions, connect with other people, you know, is conducted by the brain, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So it comes out of the brain. Um, and, you know, the, the brain, uh, it's an incredibly um, intensely energetic organ, even when we're sleeping, uh, it, that brain is very, very active and using a lot of calories and, um, you know, but really without the brain, you know, we, we wouldn't have consciousness, we wouldn't be able to communicate. So, uh, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't be, you know, couldn't live, uh, you know, it controls yeah. um, our body operations too, our movement and balance and things like that as well. Mm. So um, I, you know, I think they're, not quite one in the same, you know, uh, I think our mind is more about our consciousness. Our brain is the operation center that allows that to happen. So I'll, I'll put right. it that way. <laughs> no, the reason I ask that is because we have a lot of, um, now there are a lot of, there's a lot of talk about using naturally available psychedelics to, to treat these mm-hmm. issues, which are, mm-hmm. um, you know, to do with mood or to do with the state of the mind and a lot of that sometimes can even go into the into the gray area no pun intended uh, <laughs> of talking about these various uh, reactions and how those chemicals can react and some people would say you know what the mind of course yes it is a space of consciousness and you can mm-hmm. uh, sometimes not explain it through science but having said that uh, if we medicate uh, give a certain chemical component to the brain then it sort of uh, simulates these things which are which help you be happy or have all these various emotional mm-hmm. states um, mm-hmm. no but w- w- what is what what is going on when it comes to say uh, if you could just sort of medically take us through this is uh, you've 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 dealt with uh, newborn babies and then uh, the brain where the brain is really not formed and it forms in the first few weeks and months mm-hmm. of life and mm-hmm. as we age uh, can you talk about the journey of the brain in that sense um yes um so uh, you know the the fetus it grows incredibly fast um during that nine months uh, but when a human baby is born uh, compared to many other mammals the human baby is very dependent um, there's still a lot of brain growth that needs to happen before an infant can take care of itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, you think of other animals, you know, they're born and within minutes, some of them can stand up and start walking around and it takes a human baby much longer. So there's a whole lot of brain development that has to happen. And, you know, the human brain relative to the size of the body is much, much larger than most mammals. And, mm. um, it's it, it requires an incredible amount of energy, even as a newborn. Uh, the newborn brain uses something like three quarters of the energy, the calories that the baby's taking in. Wow! So okay. it's very active. Um, there's a whole lot of um, uh, like formation of various lipids in the brain. Like the brain is about sixty or seventy percent lipids, and um, you know we're going to be talking about ketones, but yeah. in the newborn ketones are the building blocks for these lipids. Um, mm. 
And, you know, if you think about it too, the newborn baby is very fat compared to other mammals. You know, most mammals are thin um, and, you know, the newborn baby has all of this fat. And when a woman breastfeeds, it can take like several days for the milk to really start coming in. There's a little bit of colostrum, but there's not much. And as a neonatologist, you know, when I was first in training, I would think, what is this baby living off of, you know, because it would get drops those first few days. And actually the baby's living off the fat. Um, and the, the fat breaks down. A baby that's just strictly breastfed goes into ketosis. They they start breaking down their fat. The fat's converted to ketones. The ketones provide an incredible amount of energy for the brain and those building blocks for the lipids. You know, so early on, uh, that's what's going on. And um, uh, you know, during the first few years, we make most of the neurons we're ever going to have. We can still make them throughout our life, but most of them are made. And most of them, uh, you know, like a neuron can live something they believe 120 years, you know, so these brain cells that we lay down when we're infants, many of them are still there when we pass away at the end of life. And, um, you know, we need to basically take care of our brain throughout our lives, um, looking at um, how we eat, what we eat, um, you know, doing things like uh, maintaining uh a good level of activity, you know, will help support the brain and, and keep it healthy. Um, at, at, at the end of life, a lot of changes start happening as we age. Mm-hmm. And, and it actually is not really at the end of life. It's somewhere in the 30s, you know, our brain kind of maxes out yeah, yeah. in our mid to late 30s. And then from that point on, it can start shrinking a little bit each year after thereafter and um that kind of accelerates when we get to be in our 50s and 60s so um and then of course it kind of goes downhill from there so it's just really important to nourish our brain to try to maintain it in the best state that it can be in you know throughout our lives and you know potentially prevent a lot of problems down the road um Mm. Uh, there's another phenomenon that happens. Um, it's called the brain energy gap. And this was uh, discovered by um, Dr. Stephen Cunane, who uh, is a researcher at uh, University of Sherbrooke in Canada. Mm. And he has been doing PET imaging with ketones and glucose. And mm. it's already it was already known that um, in Alzheimer's disease and in many other diseases, even like uh, bipolar depression, schizophrenia, um, uh, people with Down syndrome, children with autism, there's a problem of getting glucose into certain parts of the brain. It's a little bit different for each disease, mm. but um, it's a problem of getting glucose in. Um, and he's been able to show that um, ketones, for example, in Alzheimer's disease are taken up normally in those same areas of the brain that are affected. Um, mm. And so he has found that as we age, we gradually develop this gap in energy. He calls it the brain energy gap between how much energy our brain needs and how much it actually gets. Mm-hmm. And um, part of this has to do with uh, the brain just not taking up glucose as well as it did when we were younger. And um, he's been able to show that he's looked at young adults through very old adults uh, people who at the end of life are healthy, have normal memory versus people that have mild cognitive impairment versus people that have Alzheimer's. Mm. And he has shown like, say uh, somebody in their seventies, they'll have a gap in their brain energy uh, of about seven to 9%, seven to 9%. Mm. 
Mm. And that's, you know, the gap, you know, they're just not getting enough energy. And it could account for some of that shrinkage that's happening in the brain every year that the brain's just not getting enough energy. So those cells kind of go dormant, they're not functioning well, you know, that type of thing, the ones that aren't getting energy. Um, and if you have mild cognitive impairment, this increases to 10 or 12%. If you have mild Alzheimer's, just at the early stages, it's 20% gap between how much energy your brain needs and how much it gets. And it just gets much worse from there as Alzheimer's progresses. So, so it's almost like um, the brain is starving. Or it, yes, exactly. There are cells that are starving. There can be plenty of glucose, which is the main fuel for the brain and organs when we're kind of on a typical high-carb diet. Um, there's plenty of glucose there. It's in the, the fluid surrounding all of these cells in the brain. It just can't get into the cells. And um, part of it has to do with insulin. Insulin um, in most cells is required for glucose to enter the cell um, yeah. and also to enter the brain, you know, requires insulin either directly or indirectly. Insulin mm. is a, it's, it's an incredible hormone. And, you know, we think of it as a hormone that basically allows glucose into cells, but it does such a, so, so, so much more mm. um, with um, it's, it's really a master hormone. It's involved in many, many different functions, especially in the brain. And they used to think insulin didn't get into the brain at all, but now they know that's that's just not true. So for decades, they were saying insulin isn't in the brain. It's not made in the brain, but that's not true. It's just it's in smaller amounts than it is in the bloodstream, but it's very, very active and very important in the brain. So um, what happens um, throughout our lives, uh, many people develop insulin resistance. Mm. And that if you think of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, that is what is happening in those diseases. And, um, you know, so, you know, people, uh, what, what happens is, um, you know, people tend to eat a high carb diet yeah. here in the U S it's, it's very, I mean, the standard American diet, which we call the sad diet <laughs> is, um, <laughs> tends to be very high in carbohydrates, very high in sugar. You know, we just, pl- you know, food is plentiful, there's a whole lot of processed food. They, they make it tasty with extra sugar, you know, added sugar and added salts and all this kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, but, um, you know, over time, when you're eating that much sugar, your pancreas is constantly having to put out insulin. And it just and, and it, the I the concept is that, you know, the belief is that, you know, basically the pancreas starts tiring out. It just can't put out enough insulin. And somewhere along the line, um, it, you know, cells are not responding to insulin well, certain cells. And, and this, you know, can happen anywhere in the body, any organ in the body, mm. um, or, and it can happen in the brain. For some people, it's just in the brain, uh, and they seem to be okay. Their liver and other organs, you know, seem to be handling, you know, insulin and glucose okay, but the brain might not be. And it's um, like an addict almost who's getting too much and now they're numb to it, right? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, so, um, you know, when these cells, they, you know, they don't know still, they, there's several different ideas of why this happens. And, you know, part of it, like in Alzheimer's, they've been able to see that um, there are these insulin receptors that are supposed to be on the membranes around the cell. Mm. Um and they have moved, they have moved, they're inside the cell, they're not where they need to be on the cell membrane, which is kind of like a door. It's it's like insulin is like unlocks the door to let glucose in. Mm. If they're not 
that door isn't positioned on the membrane, glucose isn't going to get in. So they, they can see that these receptors have moved. They're not where they're supposed to be. There aren't as many of them, you know, in people that have Alzheimer's and some other brain diseases. So, you know, the brain basically develops insulin resistance over time. Mm. And, um, you know, they, you know, they see this happening, um, when they study people who say are, are at risk for Alzheimer's. They yeah. can see already 10, 20 years ahead of time before they ever have any symptoms that they already have areas of decreased glucose uptake in the brain where the, mm-hmm. and it just, the brain, you know, there's trillions of, of uh, neurons, you know, so the brain can compensate for a while, but eventually more and more cells are affected. And then you start seeing symptoms and, and even um, like people that are at risk because of their family history for Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. They've been able to document people in their 20s already, mid-20s already have decreased glucose uptake in their brain. Um, mm. So it's kind of frightening to think that um, so many of us might already be developing you know, Alzheimer's or be at risk for it like in that way. And we won't know for 10 or 20 years, you know, before we have symptoms, you know. So, yeah. you know, that's why... Um, you know, and you can start taking uh, measures at any point along the way, but the sooner the better, basically. And, um, you know, so. Um, you know, sounds and, hopeful there, you know, like, uh, sorry for interrupting, because the thing is, you mentioned that uh, a point which is very sort of uh, encouraging for someone who who is listening to this right now is that, yeah, there is the case of family history and you're predisposed genetically, but Mm -hmm. a lot of it is environmental, right? This diet that you're kind of indulging in, which is, Mm -hmm. um, it's it's almost sounding like the brain that's starving, but it's already too fat. So it's not able to absorb anything in some sense. Um, So, you know, I I want to sort of go down this path of, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, it, it's basically what it sounds like from from as a layman, uh, I, from my understanding, it's what you're putting into your body. Yes, a lot of it is what you're born with, but it's also what you're kind of constantly bombarding your brain and your organs with uh, and be, be right. in the form of this this hormone, which is so important in t- controlling all these mm-hmm. systems and mechanisms. But um, maybe before we get into that conversation, mm-hmm. could you just explain the difference uh, between glucose and 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 ketones as uh, fuel sources, just what they do okay. and how they're produced. Yeah, so so glucose basically basically when you eat carbohydrate, most of that will turn into glucose. You know, your body just naturally does that, um, and um, it depends a lot on what you eat, what fuel your body is using. So if you tend to eat a higher carb diet, you're going to um, basically have plenty of glucose available um, and your brain and your other organs can use it. Mm-hmm. So uh, they discovered uh, the, that the brain uses ketones as fuel during starvation back in the 1960s. So mm-hmm. um, what happens is when you start to fast, this happens with fasting and it happens with starvation, um, your body uh, will use up the glucose that's stored in the liver and in the muscles um, mm. within like 36 or 48 hours. I mean, it starts happening after about 12 hours, you'll start burning some fat instead of glucose because there just isn't much glucose there left. You know, it, it doesn't stay very long in our bodies when we stop eating. Um, so uh, we start breaking down fat and fatty acids are released from that. And the heart, kidneys, nearly all the other organs can use fatty acids as fuel instead of glucose. They just switch over to using fatty acids. 
Um, but these fatty acids are so large that they don't cross very well into the brain. So the brain needs an alternative source of fuel. And fortunately, um, some of the fatty acids in that condition during fasting or starvation are converted in the liver to ketones. And ketones are very tiny molecules. They're smaller than glucose. And um, they are easily taken up by the brain and instantaneously taken up by the brain. As soon as they're present, the brain just takes them up. Uh, brain cells, they don't require insulin to get into brain cells. Um, ketones actually act like insulin. They, they have many um, um, activities or effects that are similar to, to insulin. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, uh, what they found in the 1960s, they, they did these starvation studies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, the first one was, um, she was an obese nurse. She wanted to lose weight and they admitted her to the hospital. They put an IV in her. So they gave it, they, you know, she had basically water and vitamins and salt uh, for um, 40 days. Hmm. And it's a long, you know, they, um, so they, they basically, starved her, you know, for that period of time, she did lose a tremendous amount of weight, but they, they did all kinds of measurements of, um, you know, all different metabolites, uh, including glucose and ketones, but many others trying to understand how the brain survives, could survive 40 days, still be completely lucid, you know, when your body has lost so much weight. And they found that um, within a couple days of this period of prolonged period of fasting that uh, blood sugar levels start going down because there just isn't much there. Um, mm. But the ketone levels start increasing. Uh, they were like basically almost zero at the start of the starvation period. But over time, the levels got higher and higher and higher. And there are uh, three ketones, um, acetoacetate, beta hydroxybutyrate and acetone. Um, acetone um, levels get quite high, but you tend to <laughs> exhale it. Um, mm. But um, acetoacetate is converted to beta hydroxybutyrate and the beta hydroxybutyrate levels get very, very high, very, very high, sky high. Um, and then it kind of levels off after about 10 days or so mm. uh, during starvation. And it just stays consistently there. As long as you have fat to burn, you will keep making ketones. You can provide fuel to your brain. All the other organs, uh, except the liver, can use ketones too. And, and the ketones are made in the liver. So it's good that the liver can't use them because they would be gone immediately, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But so it's all, it's kind of a really neat um design of the human body and brain <laughs> that we can yeah. function this way it sounds like a system that is so ingenious i mean it's been designed mm -hmm. so perfectly and we've kind of intervened uh and kind of messed it up with uh the way we're packing in food and so maybe you know we 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 are really sort of intelligent in some sense but we really aren't because a lot of these things are being um, there's more evidence to these diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's mm -hmm. or type two diabetes all a lot more now. And from what you just, uh, what you just spoke about, it seems like it's a lot to do with insulin and food related and diet related and what you're putting into your body. And, um, so, maybe, so, so there's this whole thing, these fads with different diets, right? Whether it's it's mm -hmm. ketogenic diets, whether it's the paleo diet, and then you have these other ideas right. of intermittent fasting, time restricted feeding, or you have uh, sustained mm -hmm. fasts. And um, but before that, you you mentioned something a few minutes back about how when babies are really small, they use ketones mm -hmm. for the brain, uh, right. and then as babies become children, we sort of mm -hmm. 
end up getting them on board with this processed food, three meals a day, five meals a day. You can't get a child go hungry. It has to have food for fuel to grow. Uh, but clearly that prolonged pattern starts causing issues, right? So uh, if, yeah. if, if uh, I mean, first of all, do children need uh, the five meals or that much food and sugar as we are pumping into them? And if not, why aren't we correcting our ways with evidence being presented constantly now with what insulin or insulin resistance can do? And uh, why is it so hard to communicate to people to eat less? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, yeah, uh, like here in the U.S., it's, you know, there's been this dogma um, for about, you know, 40 years at least to eat a low fat diet. And mm. to me, it's, uh, it's kind of appalling that, well, human breast milk is 50% fat. And it's mm. something like ha- at least half of that is saturated fat. Mm. And some of those are um, medium chain triglycerides that are converted to ketones in breast milk, you know, so the baby gets it from their own fat and from the breast milk, these ketones. Um, so then um, here in, you know, in the US, when a baby weeds from the breast, uh, the formula has a little less fat, but still, you know, close to breast milk. But then when they go off the infant formula, um, they recommend that children start eating low fat or fat free dairy, that you know, that what they recommend for children has almost no fat. And it's, um, it's really bothersome, because you know, your body needs a certain amount of calories. Yeah. And, um, you know, a certain amount of protein, like maybe 15 or 20% of your calories. Um, and, you know, for a child, um, but if you're not eating fat, you're going to eat carbohydrate to make up yeah. the difference in calories. So the children, you know, what we're seeing are preschoolers that are already obese. And even some of them have already, you know, young children have type two diabetes, which used to be called adult onset diabetes. Oh my God. And now we're seeing it in children and very much, you know, in, in teenagers here in the US, you know, uh, children that are quite heavy. And, and that was unusual. Even like when I was a child, there was one one little girl in my whole school yeah. that was, you know, heavy. And now it's very common to see heavy children here in the US and, and um, you know, eating, you know, telling them to eat low fat, you go from 50% fat and breast milk to uh, they would, you know, if they had their way, it would be zero. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it doesn't make sense. Um, and the brain is still growing rapidly at that point. And the brain needs these lipids. Um, they don't have any source of anything that would make ketones, mm. um, you know, uh, to help, you know, build the brain. Um I, I do think, you know, some of this could have uh, something to do with the high, you know, increasing rate of autism that we're seeing here in the U.S. Um, that, you know, how they're being fed um, mm. may have something to do with it. But, you know, like school lunch programs go along with these guidelines to eat low fat. And um, there's something called the WIC program, Women's Infants and Children. It's a program for for people that um you know don't that have a low income where they provide food you know to the pregnant mother and then to her her infant and then to the children up to a certain age and it's these low fat guidelines you know low fat they low fat dairy low fat yogurt you know fat free you know um good Mm. and so something's gotten very confused and um 
every five years they they put together these dietary guidelines for Americans and you know for adults and children, and they keep coming back to the same, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, there are so many external forces, industry forces, the sugar industry, you know, the oil industries, the this, you know, various industries that are involved in, um, and then the people are lobbied, you know, that are involved in these committees. And then they, they perpetuate these guidelines, even though it's pretty clear that that health, you know, of Americans, you know, obesity, diabetes has been escalating. Dementia has been escalating right along with it. Mm. Um, autism has been increasing all of these problems. And it's like, uh, could you think it has something to do with the, the way we're eating, the way you're, you're guiding us to eat here in the U S and, you know, and then, you know, when they started with all of these, um, low fat, fat free guidelines, food manufacturers go along with that and they make a huge amount of reduced fat cheese, reduced fat, this, you know, mm. um, skim milk, vegan um, cheese. Yeah. And, yeah. and so many snacks, yeah. so many snacks that are all carbohydrate, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they, they're being touted as healthy because they're low yeah. in fat, but yeah. they're, they're very high in carbohydrate It's sugar and, you know, added sugars. And a lot of them have, um, for example, high fructose corn syrup, which mm. came along in the 1970s. And um, so much of processed American food has high fructose corn syrup and, um, you know, fructose, um, it's a, it's a sugar that's found in fruit, but it's like, it's even uh, more concentrated in a lot of yeah. these processed foods. Um, it's very, very damaging. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, for example, there's something called advanced glycation end products. So mm. this is, uh, you know, it comes from if your glucose level is too high, but if you're eating fructose, it's like 10 times more likely to happen, but it's kind of like, um, if you're cooking food uh, and you're, you want to caramelize something. Mm. So you add sugar to a fat or protein and it will brown it. It will caramelize it. And it's a process sort of like that. Like when you constantly have a high sugar level in your body and, and especially if you throw fructose in there is that sugar Mm. um, your body starts uh, the sugars will attach to proteins and fats and even DNA and RNA in your body. And ah, so we're all heading products. towards becoming caramel puddings. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Especially so, when I'm living know. in India with the summer heat, or maybe even like now in California with the wildfires, you're going you're gonna to have some. <laughs> yeah. 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 So these uh, sticky substances form and they're very inflammatory. They kind of muck up everything. Even insulin can become, mm-hmm. they call it glycated. You know, it can be attached to sugar and it can affect how the insulin functions. It's becoming and, like a sludge you know, almost. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like sludge. And, and this can happen like in any tissue. It can happen in the eyes and the kidneys, you know? And so people that have diabetes, um, you know, many of them are, uh, they, they don't even get good instruction, much less are they told to reduce the carbohydrate. You know, they might be told, you know, some obvious things, you know, with their diet, but they're not instructed necessarily to, um, that if they could greatly reduce the amount of sugar in their diet, they might not need as much medication. They might not need to go on insulin at some point, you know, they could actually get their blood sugar back in the normal range again, yeah. um, Instead, you know, they're given medications and then over time, this gets worse and worse and worse uh, Mm. and they need more medication. Eventually, many people with type 2 diabetes need insulin because their pancreas is just completely worn out. It's not making it anymore. Um, And um, 
then they develop all these complications that are related from having this high blood sugar level all their life, all this inflammation, you know, it's, it's a really common cause of, um, it's one of the, the top causes of blindness as a person gets older, um, kidney failure. Um, many people have uh, developed problems with their skin, you know, where their, uh, the circulation to their, you know, the skin deteriorates, um, they can get infections in their feet and toes, um, peripheral neuropathy, the nerves don't function, they get numbness, tingling, burning in their hands and their feet. And, um, you know, so this is, you know, what happens if you develop, you know, diabetes, you don't control your blood sugar very, very carefully. Over time, many people develop com- complications later in life. And um, uh, here in the US, when you get to be age 75, three quarters of people either have diabetes or prediabetes already. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know what's happening there is coming here times uh, like tenfold, you know, because the the, the, the industries that you were talking about, oil, sugar, uh, pharma, mm-hmm. they see India and countries like India developing, developed, uh, sorry, third world developing countries um, because a lot of people were denied the opportunity of having these foods which were seen as mm-hmm. gifts from the west right like cookies yes. and uh, ice cream and 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 soda yeah. and sugar pops yeah. and all these yeah. these rich chocolates and of course i i'm not pointing mm-hmm. fingers i i'd loved um a twix growing up mm-hmm. or a snickers and it's yeah. it's yeah, but it's amazing right but now you see the scale uh with um mm-hmm. you go to any sort of shopping app like a grocery app like it, the cheapest things or like, you know, if you scale it to an Indian price point, you can get, you know, you go, the, the first things that pop up on shopping apps or food delivery apps are like the processed stuff, be it the fast food options or be it fries or be it like, you know, and, and the number of kind of savory options, um, not savory, sorry, like the pastry options. You have all these um, th- these bakeries opening up with all these sugary foods and it's just not even questioned and it's now like the, the the thing to do and 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 what you just described is happening mm-hmm. uh, is unfolding on a huge scale in india because uh, how do you tell someone who's never had something no no don't eat this pack of cookies or oreo cookies mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. like no you've always had it i want it now and yeah. we have this massive obese problem i mean diabetes is a huge thing in india you have people who saying oh but indians are small they don't have a big build but the point is we are heavy sort of on rice diets and on wheat diets and mm-hmm. while we did have a balance with vegetables now there's vegetables or meat or fat we used to cook in fat now it's only cooked in sort of like the foods cooked in uh, predominantly in vegetable seeds oil which is um, unsaturated fat which has also got its own evils and you just see this sickness coming up and i'll give you just an example of where i'm coming from because um, i'm genetically predisposed to having uh, issues with my cholesterol my granddad mm-hmm. had it uh, a lot of my family has it and um i as a result i have high tri- triglycerides and everyone around me is like oh it's because you were a smoker and you drink i'm like of course so mm-hmm. i you know re- mm-hmm. i reduced smoking and then i gave up smoking and i tried watching my drinking and but then it didn't go down right so then uh, the mm-hmm. doctor put me on statins last year and I was like, okay, let's mm-hmm. try this. And I got, started getting body pain, started feeling all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, you know what, this should be a better way because I'm I'm going to be 40 this year, but there's no reason to get on statins mm-hmm. at this age. So, mm-hmm. and I've seen all, a lot of my cousins who are older than me on statins for 25, 30 years and the, and, and the consequences of that, right? It has, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it takes a hit on your joints, on your bone density, on your mm-hmm. kidneys, on your liver. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. 
I started. Oh, and uh, they, they um, increase your risk of um, developing insulin resistance of diabetes. Diabetes. <laughs> so I, I said to myself, <laughs> let me try time restricted feeding. So ever since February, yeah. for the most part, uh, it's been a minimum of a um, 16 hour fast, but I go up for at least I try to go up for 80% of the time to 90% of the time I do a 21 hour fast and I try to eat in a three hour window and I don't know I haven't measured my levels in a year but I feel like I'm feeling better so within those three hours I have uh, I have a couple of things to eat I also have a beer or I have a glass of wine and I feel like my entire day is packed into those three hours of calorie you know calorific intake and I feel good maybe three hours or four hours but between between three and six hours but I feel like also it's a relief in my head going, you don't have to think constantly about what to eat next, right? <laughs> yes, right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, and I feel yeah. good. So I, I don't know. Is that is that something, yeah. I, I don't know if you want to recommend a diet, but is that something which is uh, a path that people can explore to see how their bodies react to less food intake? Yes, yes. Um, and that that's uh, something that is being studied, time-restricted eating, um, overnight fasting, uh, mm-hmm. you know, having periods of fasting, that type of thing. And uh, there's different ways to do it. And, um, you know, like I, that's something I, I talk about a lot. I write about it. Um, so, you know, people, for example, could start with a 12 hour overnight fast, you know, don't get up during the night and, <laughs> and eat something. <laughs> yeah. um, basically, um, and, and reducing carbohydrates helps a lot too, because, you know, the carbs, it seems to make you crave more carbs. You know, when you eat carbs, your insulin level can spike up, especially, you know, like um, refined sugars, things with uh, refined sugar, added sugar in them, your Mm. insulin level spikes. And when it comes back down, which it will, you get hungry again, you know? Mm. So that's why people who eat a lot of carbs tend to be hungry, hungry, hungry all the time and thinking about their next meal. Mm. Um, So, you know, reducing the carbs is a big part of it. Adding more healthy fats to the diet but um, if you, you know, start maybe with a 12 hour overnight fast and limit your eating to 12 hours, but then try to um, move it to 14 hours and then 16 hours, um, many people, you know, find it pretty easy to do a 16 hour fast overnight and then eat during an eight hour window. Um, and then, you know, you can narrow it to six hours. In your case, you've narrowed it to three hours, you know, which is really amazing. Uh, so you're not hungry. Uh, you find that you just your body has adapted to that or um yeah so the strange thing is you know i um th- th- there's also a habit of eating late uh, in indian society uh mm-hmm. typically i'm not saying everyone i can't make a generalized statement but uh you know between eight o'clock and nine or nine thirty some people later some mm-hmm. people earlier now mm-hmm. there's of course a new trend of people eating early so what i would do is try to get a meal in by um you know earlier six o'clock and try winding mm-hmm. up dinner by nine um mm-hmm. or you know uh, maybe three hours, three and a half hours, so 9.30. But then what I would notice is I would wake up uh, with sort of like, you know, gastric sort of discomfort because I'm, mm-hmm. I, I would sleep, eat by 9.30, sleep by 10. And then obviously you're feeling heavy when you wake up. So I've tried to lower uh, or sorry, red, take the time back of eating. So I try to eat between mm-hmm. like say 4.30 and 8 o'clock. So that way I get two hours before sleeping. Mm-hmm. And I feel really... Um, mm, you know, of course, sometimes you smell food cooking in the morning when you're living at home, of course, with a bigger family. You smell all the breakfast foods or during lunch, yeah, yeah. something you like. And of course, yeah. your mouth waters and you're like, oh, right, but, right. you know, if I have a glass of water or have a, you know, I have a cup of black coffee in the morning. The temptation, it's almost like, you know, since I have given up cigarettes, 
mm-hmm. it's almost like that you know you, you you the first day of giving up smoking you you know you're like you feel that one cigarette so you have that one cigarette yeah. or you know after yeah. 10 weeks you're like you know what, I can do without a cigarette for three days but I might feel like it when I have a mm-hmm. glass of wine so it's kind of like that you don't uh, you 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 go you don't uh so you know you you don't kind of fall for the the craving right away i mean you fall for it right away in the first couple of days but it gets easier with time and then eventually yeah. you know i think 20 20 yeah i think 20 to 21 hours is a dream but i did try a 36 hour fast the other day and it i couldn't make it past 25 hours because in my mm-hmm. head it was more like oh my god another day another day you know so yeah. it was more a yeah, mental yeah. block uh the way yeah. i approached it was wrong you know yeah Well, yeah, it's yeah, 36 hour fast is pushing. I've tried, you know, um like a 60 hour fast a couple of times and I got maybe to the 48 hour mark and yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm just really hungry and I yeah. can't do another night, you know, um you, you know, you need to drink plenty of fluids if you do that, you know, yeah. um, possibly drink broth or something like that to yeah. um you know, I also worry if you do that too often you know, your body needs a certain amount of protein, you're going to break down some muscle if you prolong the fast too long, you know, so um, yeah, I, and I, I think, like, uh, just to add to your thing, doctor, uh, is it, it all, uh, maybe you can talk about this is because a lot of mm-hmm. things which we've talked, uh, spoken about, uh, end up becoming fads, right? You have people mm-hmm. who are right. whether influencers or people, and, and that's mm-hmm. why I'm talking to you about it, because medically, you are in a position to answer this. And I, I want to mm-hmm. understand what if I'm doing, is it? Mm-hmm. Is it something which is just some easily available in the internet? And, and I'm, and I'm kind yeah. of been scammed yeah. into it? Um, or is it something that studies are backing? Because for a lot of people, they read this um you know insta post or whatever it may be their source of information and they're like you know what i'm going to go into ketosis tomorrow and they just get on these diets or they they're like yeah. i'm going to go on a 72 hour fast on a water diet on a this yeah, and right the next thing you know they've they've gone into some sort of kind you know, into a seizure because they've have no fat in their body they've denied themselves mm-hmm. carbohydrates as you said muscle mm-hmm. breakdown so mm-hmm. how would someone try to approach this at the same time listen to what their body needs and trying to find mm-hmm. a balanced approach and i think the biggest thing which i found is something which is sustainable as opposed to just a fad that lasts a week you know right right uh, you know so i you know i think doing the overnight fast um uh, but allowing yourself time to eat during the day you know i think is the way to go um y- your body well you don't want to lose muscle uh, it's a really bad idea to lose muscle over time um and if you don't eat enough protein that will happen you know mm-hmm. um so uh you probably weigh yourselves in kilos in yeah. india okay so ideally you would eat like one gram of protein for each kilo that you weigh you know is mm-hmm. so you know when you're kind of planning how you're going to eat that that's a good starting place is to uh, i need this amount of protein you know So you can look up, um, you know, like, uh, say, uh, chicken or fish or, you know, certain meats, like uh, three ounces, which isn't very much really, you Mm -hmm. know, would be maybe 20 to 24 grams of protein. But um, there's all kinds of food count books that you can get, you know, to look up how much uh, protein is in something. But, you know, make sure that you get about, you know, a gram per kilo that you weigh every day of protein. Yeah. So that that's a good place, you know, to start when you're planning a diet. And then, um, you know, you don't want it to be a junk food diet either. You know, there yeah. are so many nutrients that you get from 
other um, like vegetables. Um, so, you know, some of the uh, uh, best diets, I think, you know, for people that have diabetes, for example, to get it under control, you know, start with the protein and, um, you know, eating enough vegetables, getting a variety of different types of vegetables, because there are so many different kinds of vitamins and other nutrients that we need and um, getting some leafy green vegetables and then getting some other types of vegetables, you know, um, the more solid kinds of vegetables, different colors, different colors have different vitamins in them um, is important. Um, eating a certain amount of fat and, you know, it doesn't have to be super high fat, but um, well, I, I'll talk about, okay, Dr. Eric Westman, he's at um, Duke University here mm. in the U.S. in North Carolina. And he has been helping people with type 2 diabetes for over 20 years with a low carb, very low carb diet. And um, so this is, you know, he recommends, you know, getting adequate protein, um, eating vegetables. He says get like two cups of leafy greens and one cup of other vegetables every day. Um, and then somewhere between three to five tablespoons a day of of some kind of fat, you know, and there there's fats in some of the proteins that you eat, you know, some, some, you know, um, animal meats have naturally have some fat in them. Um, but in addition to that, eating maybe three to five tablespoons a day, and this is somebody that's trying to lose weight though, you know, they're, they're trying to get their diabetes under control. They often have a problem with, um, obesity, which tends to go along. It's not a hundred percent, but it goes along with type two diabetes. Um, And he says, you know, then you'll use your body fat to make up the rest of the fat. And um, people that eat that way are in ketosis. Um, mm. And, um, you know, their blood sugar will come down very dramatically over six or eight weeks. It's really pretty incredible. And uh, there's a, um, a blood test called hemoglobin A1C that it kind of gives you a rough estimate of what your average blood sugar is over three months. And it's a, a pretty easy test to get, but over time, you know, um, as people with diabetes, it's high and then it just comes down, comes down, comes down. And, uh, like type two diabetics, if they're on insulin, he stops it like immediately because the blood sugar is going to come down drastically as soon as you stop eating a lot of carbohydrate. So he, um, tells them to limit their carbs to about 15 or 20 grams a day and to make it vegetables, basically the carbs, vegetables, and, um, very, very successful. And um, he's helped over 4,000 people get go into remission, you know, with type two diabetes. And uh, he never calls it a cure, because as soon as you start eating the other way again, it yeah. starts to come back. <laughs> so, yeah, but it can be reversed. That's the most empowering thing. It can thing be out reversed, and it can be controlled. And um, so that's where he starts. And that's, that's really, it's pretty drastic, you know, for most people, you know, so, um you know, other foods, you know, like whole grains, you know, getting away from eating like refined white rice, you know, I don't know, uh, in India, um, yeah, do people white rice. mostly white rice now, yeah. uh, but, but probably maybe um, a century ago, people didn't eat white rice. I mean, that's kind of a new I, I mean, there are a lot thing. of people now who do kind of go for the rice with a husk on it. And of course, you have different mm-hmm. families of rice, like the yeah. brown rice, red rice. You have the millets and yeah. you have different kinds of uh, of uh, those kinds of uh, grains that people use. But mm-hmm. a lot of the mainstream easy to get stuff is polished white rice or it's polished wheat and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. flour, which people use, which uh, is... Yeah, the white flour. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're about 90 percent. They... 90% of what you eat from those turns into sugar, turns into glucose. Mm. Um, if you eat the whole grains, 
Um, it's, it's still maybe 80%, yeah. but you get a lot of other nutrients and you get more fiber, much more fiber, uh, which is also very important. Um, you know, we have all these, uh, like trillions of bacteria, viruses, other things in our gut that are, they're actually part, they're, they're finding more and more that they have a whole lot to do with how, how our body operates, the metabolism of our body, you know, they, these yeah. things, these, these bacteria and everything in our gut produce metabolites that our brain actually they show up in our brain and our brain actually uses them it's mm. it's quite incredible you know so we have to feed our gut and fiber is one of the things that does feed feed you know the bacteria that we need you know in our gut um so um you know of course vegetables have fiber in them um but whole grains do too and and things like legumes you know beans um they tend to be very high in carbohydrate, but roughly half of it is is fiber. Um, mm. And you know, fiber doesn't really stimulate insulin. It's it's not absorbed. It's it kind of stays in your gut. Um, so you know, I kind of suggest you know people eat small portions of these things. You know, uh, don't fill up your whole plate with uh, <laughs> with it, but you know, eat small portions of things like legumes and and whole grains. Um, nuts and seeds are great. They're uh, kind of naturally ketogenic. They're higher in fat. They have very, you know, a little bit of carbohydrate. They tend to have fiber. They have these um, healthy fats that are monounsaturated fats, you know, which are similar. You know, they're they're the fats that are in like olive oil, you know, which is touted as a healthy fat, you know, for example. Um, you know, so those are, are very good um, foods for people to eat. Um, uh so, you know, getting a balanced diet, you know, eating a variety of foods, but, you know, just, it, I, I think almost any diet can be adapted to be a ketogenic diet, you know, yeah. even a junk food diet, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, basically making sure you get enough protein, keep to maintain your muscle strength and function as you age mm. um, and, and exercise helps with that too. Yeah. Um, aerobic exercise tends to burn more calories. It kind of exercises your muscles, but doing some kind of strength training, uh, you know, with weights or resistance, you know, things like squats, things like that, that work your muscles will help build your muscles and um, help you maintain your function as you get older, you know, so, so doing both kinds of exercise is really important, um, you know, and, 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 to maintain that muscle. Right. So you mentioned this at the beginning as well about the mm -hmm. onset of dementia, Alzheimer's. Sometimes if your uh, family history has these markers, you can even mm -hmm. have indicators early on in age. So with everything we've spoken about, maybe we can go into this space of this uh, degenerative situation, which mm -hmm. um, causes um, the brain to starve and shrink and have issues mm -hmm. like Parkinson's, mm -hmm. dementia, Alzheimer's. So, when is it, uh, you know, is there a time to start being healthy or is it, or can, can we even for our kids give them less food and get, get them yeah. on track? Because you're seen as a bad parent. You're like, oh, okay, how can you not let your kid eat? Let them eat mm -hmm. what they want. You're denying them the happiness of childhood. But, but clearly we're creating sick, uh, we're, we're creating a sick way of living mm -hmm. for these children yeah. to then grow up into sick adults. And maybe can we talk about how that path leads to a larger population of people with dementia uh, mm -hmm. and also then Alzheimer's and yeah, and yeah, we can maybe go down that path yeah. if you're okay with that. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, it, you know, 
for years, they've been trying to figure out what causes Alzheimer's and figuring it must be a single cause, you know, they, um, but they, you know, tens of thousands of researchers all around the world have been studying this billions and billions of dollars of research. And they still can't tell us today after studying it for 50 years, at least what causes Alzheimer's disease. But um, they're always looking deep in the brain at these, like an enzyme that might be missing or something like that. But, um, you know, I I believe that what they need to do is step back and look at the bigger picture. Mm. You know, um, obesity, diabetes, and dementia have been just skyrocketing, you know, right along, trending in the same direction now for years, about, you know, 40 or 50 years um, so there has to be some kind of connection. It seems like, um, you know, it seems like what you put in, you know, it's not that we've, you know, somehow mutated into the species that develops mm-hmm. dementia, something happened. And the most obvious thing is how we're eating, you know, the food that we've been eating, the ma- massive, massive changes in, um, you know, the foods that we have available to eat and what people have chosen to eat. You know, these other healthy foods are all out there. It's just that they're, when you go in a grocery store, most of the grocery store are these processed foods. Yeah. You know, when you walk around, at least here in the U.S., they are. Um, it's coming here. It's coming here slowly, but surely and strongly. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, uh, my gut feeling is the sooner you do it, the better. Mm. But it's never too late to start. Um you know, I uh, have seen people, um, you know, who are, you know, quite far. I mean, they're uh, up in age in their yeah. 70s and 80s and they're developing memory symptoms and they start adopting some ketogenic uh, approaches, you know, mm. changing their diet, getting rid of a lot of the carbohydrate um, and then, add, you know, maybe adding exercise, adding overnight fasting and then, um, you know, the thing that I've been very interested in is um, adding uh, a coconut oil or MCT oil to the diet, which stimulates ketone production. Your liver automatically will make some ketones from eating these oils. Um, so, yeah, and, could you talk um, about that? Because do you cook it in the oil or do you eat like the oil in its uh, un- unheated state? Um, you can do it either way, mm. but uh, it's more pleasant to make it part of your food, I think. Yeah, you know, um, no, because the, coconut uh, oil is big in certain parts of India, and a lot of people yeah. still cook in that. And there's another really uh, famous thing that Indians cook in. It's called clarified butter. They also call it ghee over yeah, here. Yeah, ghee. Yeah. yeah, and apparently that's. Uh, can, do you have information on that as well to talk about in addition to coconut yeah, oil? Yeah, um, yeah, butter does have some medium chain triglycerides in it too. Mm. Um, that naturally in the the oil and. You know, when you eat, it doesn't matter what you eat. If you eat something with medium chain triglycerides, you will make some ketones and your brain will take those up, mm. you know, and, and the same with milk fat, dairy fat has some medium chain triglycerides in it, just like human milk, cow milk and goat milk, mm. um, you know, horse milk, sheep milk, they all have some medium chain triglycerides. So, you know, I, I always uh, look at it, you know, if, if there's something in breast milk, it's probably there for a reason, an important yeah. <laughs> reason. Um, yeah. So getting rid of the fat in the milk doesn't make any sense, you know. So, so does it, do these milk substitutes have it? The ones we look at like uh, peanut milk or cashew milk or oat milk? No. Uh, okay. Not, not really. Coconut milk does, you know, because right. coconut milk is mostly coconut oil. But mm. uh, the nut oils, um, the nut nut milks don't have medium chain triglycerides in them. Um, mm. I think they're healthy in other ways. Right. You know, but they don't hit medium chain triglycerides. So they're, they're the only 
there are only a few oils that contain naturally contain medium chain triglycerides. And one is coconut oil, very mm. rich in it. It's about 60% medium chain triglycerides, uh, palm kernel oil. Um, it's not like palm oil, which is from the yellow pulp of the palm fruit. Right. Right. has almost no medium chain triglycerides, but there's a seed at the center called the kernel. That's a right. white kernel. And that is very close to coconut oil as far as it's, it's very rich in medium chain triglycerides. Um, mm. But, you know, it's, it's a very different, it's, you would think it would have the same texture as coconut oil, but it doesn't, it tends to be kind of hard and flaky and it's not like an oil that you can cook with very easily, but right. you know, they do put it in processed foods, but they often hydrogenate it when they do that, which is another problem. Hydrogenated oils are not good. They mm. just, these trans fats that are produced from them are very harmful. Um, so, um, so, so coconut what are the oil, benefits because you've administered this coconut oil, um, mm-hmm. uh, to, to you, you, are look, you're caring for your husband now who's going through, right, right. um, and how, how has it benefited him? How, or how, how has it reversed some of his symptoms? Yeah. So, um, so this happened back in 2008. Um, my husband had early onset Alzheimer's, um, I'll tell you that the story had a happy middle, but it did not have a happy ending because he did pass away in 2016. I'm so sorry to hear um, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you what happened. But um, so he had early onset Alzheimer's. He was 51. He was an accountant. He worked for my medical practice. He was able to work from home, take care Mm. of our kids, you know, when I was working and that kind of thing. And Mm. um, he uh, started having problems with his accounting He'd forget appointments for the kids, things like that when he was mm-hmm. 51. And um, it young. just yeah. kind of got worse and worse. And he ended up being diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's when he was only 54. Wow. And that, I mean, that was yes. devastating, you know, yeah. because our whole life, you know, both of us have very elderly uh, grandparents. And we thought, you know, we're going to live to be a ripe old age. And yeah. then he gets this diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And like the average lifespan is about seven years from diagnosis. So... You know, we didn't oh, even wow. think we were going to get to retirement together, you know. Um, okay. So um, he, you know, went on the usual Alzheimer's medications, uh, but he kept getting worse and worse. Uh, around 2006, we completely switched our, our diet. I came across um, an article, um, a scientific article about a study that showed that people who ate the most Mediterranean-like diet with Alzheimer's live four years longer than people that ate the least Mediterranean like mm. diet. And, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Cause I had never thought nutrition had anything to do with it. You know, like the Alzheimer's association, they would say, it's not something you eat that doesn't have anything to do with your diet. We don't know what it is, but it's not your diet. You know, it, to me, it may, you know, looking back, that made no sense if they didn't yeah. know how could they say that, you know, but we, so we completely switched over from the convenience food, processed food diet, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, typical American diet to eating a Mediterranean kind of diet. And, you know, the Mediterranean di- diet, it's just basically a group of foods. Uh, it emphasizes more fish, uh, more fat, more healthy mm-hmm. fats, uh, eating a lot of vegetables, you know, um, the whole grains, the legumes, you know, all of that, the nuts and the seeds. But, you can do that diet, you know, it's not really strictly Mediterranean. Many yeah. cultures have those same food groups, you know, yeah. it's, and um, the people that tend to live longer, you know, more, you know, over age a hundred are 
more likely eating that kind of a diet. There's certain clusters around the world where people are eating kind of a similar diet. It's just the foods that are native to their area, you know, that they're eating, but, you know, the same food groups. Um, so we started doing that. I, I got much healthier. My, mm. my cravings went away because already it was much less sugar than yeah. what we were used to. Yeah, we were eating a low-fat diet and high-sugar diet, you know. Um, so you moved away from the low-fat, high-sugar to a yeah, high-fat. Yeah, so we already – so that greatly reduced the carbohydrates right there, you know, eating whole grains um, uh, and much more vegetables. I, You know, I was used to eating vegetables in cans. I hated them. I didn't like vegetables. But mm. we started eating all these fresh vegetables and more salads and – you know, and um, I lost a huge amount of weight. My blood sugar got under control because mine was creeping up into the pre-diabetic range. Mm. Um, his was too. So, you know, that improved a lot, but he did keep getting worse. He kept getting worse. And, you know, I don't know if um, it slowed it down. There was no way to know if it slowed it down or what, but he did um, his Alzheimer's symptoms kept getting much worse. He had to stop driving. He couldn't do any accounting at all. Couldn't even figure out how to, uh, turn a computer on or use the mouse. And this was a, com- he was on a computer all day, mm. you know? Um, and, and at this, at this point he's 56 wow. and, um, you know, and then steadily going downhill, you know, after that. So in 2008, he was 58 years old. Um, we're looking at, um, he could hardly finish a sentence. He was very slow. Um, he couldn't pick up his feet and run anymore. He, his gait was just weird. He'd pick his feet up real high and kind mm-hmm. of slow. And um, it was, you know, uh, he couldn't remember what he was doing. He would, you know, stop doing, he'd get confused about what he was even doing, he had trouble finishing doing anything. It was, so we were awesome. pretty desperate. And yeah. um, there were two clinical trials that came along at the same time in our area, there hadn't been any for a couple of years. And we were always hopeful that maybe he'd be one of the first people to get, you know, get the, um, uh, this, the cure for Alzheimer's, you know, we were always hopeful. So I signed him up to try out for two clinical trials, two days in a row when I was off work, I wasn't working those days. And then the night before I got on the internet and I started looking for, um, the risks and benefits of the two drugs he was trying out for, because if he got accepted to both studies, we would have to pick one. We, you yeah. can't be in two clinical trials at the same time. So I came upon just by accident, a press release about a medical food that was going to be coming out in about a year, but they had tested it. And um, with just a single dose, half of the people with Alzheimer's that took it had improvement in their memory and cognition, and you'd never ever hear that about Alzheimer's drug. They never claimed yeah. to improve memory or cognition. And it didn't say what it was or what it did. So um, I found their patent application and um, read through it. And here uh, it turned out that it was um, medium chain triglyceride oil, MCT oil. Mm-hmm. And I knew what that was because I'm a neonatologist, yeah. I'm a newborn specialist. And we used to add that to the feedings of our tiniest preemies back in the early 1980s. Right. Um, they, they would grow faster. They would get home faster. And then the formula manufacturers started adding it directly to the infant formula. Um, and they started also adding coconut oil at that point because it's a rich source of these medium chain triglycerides. Mm. And they're trying to mimic the fats that are in breast milk. And I thought, okay, I know what MCT oil is. And then in the patent application, that's where I learned that it came from coconut oil. Mm. And I, I knew I could get coconut oil um, on the shelf because you see it in health food stores here, you yeah. know. Um, and 
Um, so, you know, this is getting to be, I'm learning all about this insulin resistance in the brain, diabetes of the brain, Alzheimer's, um, and, and how ketones are this fuel that the brain can use, you know, as an alternative to glucose. And it was just, it was just a brilliant idea. And, you know, this, in the studies, people actually did respond to it. So I thought, yeah. okay, this is worth a try, you know, but, um, I'm learning about this. It's like about 1am at the point that I'm reading this and I didn't have a chance to go out and get the oil. So, uh, in the morning he goes, you know, we go for the clinical trial screening, um, it's about an hour drive away and he did terrible. Um, there's a 30 point test called the mini mental status exam. He needed to get at least 16 points and he only got 14 points. He didn't, um, he didn't get accepted into the trial and, you know, and we were really devastated and the doctor, um, had him draw a clock. I actually have a picture of it. I don't know if your readers, will they see us on your uh, program or no? We can use, we use some of the clips, so I'll, I can make sure okay. I use these clips. Let yeah. me see. I've got to find it. But he, um, the doctor asked him to draw a clock, and um, I should have marked it in here. Oh, here. Okay, here we go. So um, she asked him to draw a clock, and this is, this is what he drew. <laughs> can you see that? Um, not very clearly, but it... it it's like a... Um, a few little circles. There's no big circle. Oh, a few circles and a few numbers. That doesn't My look God. like a clock at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, she said, you know, it's very disorganized. He's on the verge of severe Alzheimer's. You know, which oh I kind of knew it, but yet to have her tell me that, you know, was very startling. And um, and you know, and Steve too. He was very aware he had Alzheimer's. He knew his diagnosis. He knew he had it. He knew what he had been able to do. What he could no longer do very depressed, you know? So on the way home, I thought, what do we have to lose? I'm going to pick up some coconut oil. And then, (laughs) you know, when we got home, I went back to my freshman biochemistry and figured out which are the medium trained triglycerides. I found the fatty acid composition of coconut oil on a um, U.S. government website. And I figured out it had 60% medium chain triglycerides. So I figured out how much coconut oil he would need to take to equal the amount of medium chain triglyceride in that oil that they used in the study, you know, which was, it was 20 grams um, or four teaspoons. And um, I calculated seven teaspoons of coconut oil he would need to take Mm. to equal that dose that these people got. So the next day, you know, he's going to have another testing for a different clinical trial, different location. And I gave him seven teaspoons of coconut oil. I put it in his oatmeal um, because, you know, uh, coconut oil is kind of creamy. It needs something warm. It'll melt in something warm. So that's why I kind of picked oatmeal. And um, three hours later, we go to the other screening and he gained four points. And they were a different day of the week. He remembered what season it was, which he didn't the day before. He remembered what city we were in, even though it was a different city and what floor he was on in the institution, even though it was different than the day before. And um, he got into the clinical trial. He was accepted. And, you know, we're like, um, okay, was it really the coconut oil or (laughs) were we just lucky or, you know, what was it? Was prayers, you know, what was it? Um, But I'm going to keep it going, you know. And then um, in in this medical food, it was just a one once a day dose. And they said in their study that the level of ketones from it peaked at about 90 minutes. And by three hours, the ketones were gone. And I thought, 
you know, your brain needs fuel 24 seven, you know, 24 hours a day, you know, not just three hours. And so um, I thought, you know, I'm going to start adding it to other meals. And I got every cookbook, uh, looked up a gazillion recipes. And like the next day started giving to them uh, seven teaspoons of breakfast. And then, um, you know, started cooking with it the rest of the day, adding it to foods. And, you know, the nice thing is that it like, it just melts on anything warm, you know, yeah. you can, put it into anything warm. You can cook with it at lower heat, you know, below medium heat. If it smokes, you've kind of ruined the oil, but as yeah. long as you don't, it doesn't smoke. Um, if you don't use too high of heat, it will, those medium chain triglycerides stay as they are in the oil and your liver will convert them to ketones. And the ketone levels are not very high from coconut oil compared to MCT oil. But for some reason he had a dramatic response to it. And, you know, that first day, I mean, he gained four points on that test, which was really unusual. Uh, it's, um, um, I think in the, the other study, they gained on average maybe two points, you know, right. so he gained four points. But then over the next few days, as we're adding more and more of this to his diet, he got much more energetic, more talkative. He started whistling again and telling jokes again and just, uh, you know, um, he could do things like uh, figure out how to get uh, the right utensil out of the drawer or the, you know, how to get water out of the re- dispenser and the refrigerator and things that he couldn't do, you know, the day before we started this. And, and um, you know, he just, he, he said he felt like a light switch came on in his brain the day he started the coconut oil. He told me that many times his mood lifted. Wow. He felt like he had hope for his future again. That happened fairly quickly. So within a matter of about five days, so much change that we're like, something really happened here. Mm. This seems to be working, you know, and, um, and he continued to progress. Um, he um, like had not been able to tie his shoes before this and uh, around two months after we started it, um, he could tie his shoes again. His, his walking, his ability to walk completely became normal. Um, he could run again. Um, he had tremors like in his jaw when he would try to talk and in his hands, the tremors went away. Um, he had not been able to read for about a year and a half, but he couldn't really tell me why. And around three or four months after we did this, he, um, he, one day he said, I can read again. And I said, Whoa. well, why couldn't you read? And, and uh, he said that when he would try to read, that there were um, the words would go. He, he described it as the words would go into little pixels and they'd move around on the page. So he just mm. couldn't read because the some visual disturbance that he had. And and I had seen one time, you know, before all this happened, um, that uh, we were together and there was the thermostat on the wall, just mounted on a wall. And he pointed to it. And he said, "Look at that! It's moving all over the place." Oh, and I was okay. like. <laughs> what's going on in your brain you know yeah, it was strange yeah. but that apparently was what was happening when he would try to read well that completely went away it just stopped one day and he could read again and then um around nine or ten months he could remember what he read hours earlier you know he would tell me you know like he um there was one example where he read a story and about albert einstein in uh, scientific american this magazine and a few hours later, he told me details about the story that he had read. And I mean, he couldn't even finish a sentence, you know, before we started doing this. So, um, you know, we were doing the coconut oil um, somewhere around six weeks or so. I started adding some MCT oil to it. I never stopped the coconut oil. I just added some MCT oil to try to um, boost the ketone levels even further. And and we just slowly up the fat. He 
naturally stopped eating so much carbohydrate. He got rid of a lot of the bread and pasta and other things. He would just leave it. And, and he used to crave fruit. I think his brain was craving glucose, you know, um, he would eat so much fruit and, and that almost stopped almost right away after he started eating the coconut oil. So, you know, I think, you know, his brain was getting fuel (laughs) from ketones. Um, and, um, you know, the, uh, you know, since then, uh, there's many more things that we've learned about coconut oil. There's a, a group in Australia that's been studying it, and they've been collecting information about coconut oil from various research around the world. And, you know, coconut oil has anti-inflammatory substances in it. Mm. Um, yeah. And inflammation is a big problem, uh, part of the problem with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, a lot of these degenerative brain diseases, autism, uh, people with bipolar disease, with schizophrenia, they also have inflammation in their brains. You know, so coconut oil can help possibly control inflammation. Um, There's a fat in uh, coconut oil called lauric acid. It's half of the coconut oil. And lauric acid is um, highly antimicrobial. It Mm. kills all kinds of viruses, fungus, bacteria, like it kills the uh, bacteria that cause cavities in your mouth. Mm. Uh, It kills the bacteria that cause acne on the skin. Right. Um, and um, it, it controls you know, certain viruses. And in Steve's case, he had these fever blisters. He would get these on his mouth all the time. And when he was 29, he had an infection around his eye with these fever blisters. And they're ca- caused by a virus called the herpes simplex virus. Right. And acid kills that virus. And we rarely ever saw another fever blister after he started eating coconut oil. Um so, and there's a lot of research now, over 200 studies connecting herpes simplex virus to Alzheimer's, that it may trigger it, uh, contribute to it, you know, make it worsen or accelerate it, um, and possibly controlling it could help slow it down, you know, this disease mm-hmm. process. So, you know, uh, and then we also found out about lauric acid that um, there's a group in Japan that studied this. They were really curious why my husband would respond to coconut oil. And they found that lauric acid stimulates ketone production directly in astrocytes, which are cells in the brain that nourish the neurons in the brain. Um, So they, they believed that it could have had a direct effect in the brain, you know, this lauric acid from coconut oil. So he improved very dramatically. um, And, um, you know, I feel that overall, he gained almost four extra better years that were better than the year before we started this. So, that's I mean, amazing. if you have cancer and you get four extra years, <laughs> that's a big no, deal. That's amazing. Well, yeah. it is with Alzheimer's too, you know, to improve so much. He was able to do so much more to take care of himself again. He did so much better. He he wanted a job very badly. He had missed working and he was able to volunteer at the hospital that I worked at. He worked in the supply warehouse and would help deliver you know, supplies and put stickers on supplies and move heavy boxes and things like that. And it just made it, it was very satisfying for him to be able to do some kind of work again, you know, so it was a big deal, you know, that we got almost four years. And um, sadly, what happened to Steve (laughs) was that he, um, you know, one day um, I had to head to work and I did have somebody that stayed with him at that point to make sure he, you know, ate and that type of thing. And I had just you know, got to the hospital five minutes away and she called me and he had hugged me, told me he loved me before I left. Um, But she said he was standing and he just suddenly fell over backwards and had a severe seizure. He went into a seizure that lasted about 20 minutes and he stopped breathing and he turned blue. I mean, it was very bad. And um, I rushed home and um, I got there before the um, emergency services did. And he was blue, you know, when I got home, he was not breathing very well. 
And um, they took him to the hospital. He had another seizure on the way and he became completely dependent after that. You know, it, it his brain was already fragile. And I think that just really did uh, cause a whole lot more damage to his brain. And he was completely dependent. And we kept all of that going. And and uh, he ended up living another two and a half years after that. Um, we kept him at home. He did. Uh, we did hospice care when the time came. And that's how I got into hospice. <laughs> I thought, you know, this is great that doctors and nurses come to your house. I just yeah. thought that was wonderful. And and it was more compatible for me to do that kind of work than to rush to, off to emergencies constantly at the hospital, you know, yeah. with the newborn intensive care. So um, that's, you know, how I made a switch, you know, to the end of life care. Um, but, you know, so Steve did pass away from, from Alzheimer's his body was like perfectly nourished from the neck down his yeah. brain, you know, but his brain had this, this terrible problem. Yeah. You know, it was Alzheimer's. And um, so, um, but, you know, to gain almost four extra good years, you know, was really a miracle for us. Now I'm so sorry for your loss, doctor. It must've been Thank the hardest you. thing. And, but I really appreciate you taking the time mm-hmm. to share the story that um, must've been hard for you. It, it just sounds like having mm-hmm. someone losing them, getting them back, and then again losing them, it just feels right. like a lot of hurt. And yeah. but it, it takes a lot of strength to do what you're doing and helping others. Mm-hmm. So really, really uh, appreciate you doing this and you know helping others who are listening right now to sort of be aware of their state and what they can do from a young and uh, maybe even not a young age. So mm-hmm. I think on behalf of everyone listening and myself, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, your experience and uh, never yeah it's never too soon to start it's never too late to start and um steve was quite advanced but many people are at the very earliest stages that's a great time to catch it and even better you know just start eating healthier when you're younger and um you know there's a good chance you know they they believe 30 percent, at least 30 percent of cases of alzheimer's may be preventable by making lifestyle changes especially healthy diet and exercise, getting enough sleep, those types of things. So, um, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do to try to prevent it and um, and to have healthier brain aging. So I, I really appreciate your allowing me to come on. You know, I, I'm um, trying to carry on Steve's legacy and just try to help as many people as possible not go through what he went through. And so um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank it's you, great Doctor. to meet you. <laughs> you too, Dr. Mary Newport. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time and good luck with all the work you're doing going forward. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.